This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, August 8th. I'm Rachel Del Judas. And I'm Daniel Davis. Nolan Peterson, the Daily Signal's foreign correspondent, is back in Washington after a week traveling abroad with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Today, he'll join me in the studio to share about the trip and the news he reported on, ranging from Russia to China to North Korea and Afghanistan. I'm looking forward to it. And one last thing, if you're enjoying this podcast, be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on iTunes and encourage others to subscribe. Now, on to our top news. Well, on Wednesday, President Trump reiterated his concern over hate and white supremacy in light of last weekend's mass shootings. Here's what he had to say to reporters. I am concerned about the rise of any group of hate. I don't like it. Any group of hate. I am, whether it's white supremacy, whether it's any other kind of supremacy, whether it's Antifa, whether it's any group of hate, I am very concerned about it. He also defended his own rhetoric. No, I don't think my rhetoric has at all. I think my rhetoric is a very, uh, it brings people together. President Donald Trump is pushing back against those who say he was partially responsible for the shootings over the weekend in Texas and Ohio. My critics are political people, Trump told reporters. They're trying to make political points. On Wednesday, Trump flew to Texas and Ohio, and according to USA Today, quote, some residents of the affected communities did not welcome Trump so warmly. Some critics argue that Trump's rhetorical broadsides on migrants in particular created an atmosphere of hate that presaged the attacks, end quote. Protesters who lined Trump's route reportedly asked the Trump administration to support stricter gun control laws. Congressman Joaquin Castro of Texas is defending his decision to dox several Trump donors in his San Antonio district. Castro tweeted out the names of several Trump donors, drawing fierce criticism from some conservatives. Here's what he said Wednesday on MSNBC's Morning Joe. I made the point that that their money is going to fuel these ads and that's creating a danger. It's inciting hate towards a community. And so that's creating a danger for millions of people. And we saw the an instance where there's a cost to that. In El Paso, the, 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 the terrorist, the shooter, basically mimics a lot of the language that President Trump himself has used and that's consistent with those Facebook ads. So, you know, giving money to Donald Trump at this point is, should not be considered just the cost of doing business or, you know, uh, you know I want to, yeah, I'm, I'm a Republican in good standing, so I want to support the president. You're, you're giving money for somebody that's going after a community and people have gotten killed because of that. House Minority Whip Steve Scalise ripped Castro for doxing those donors, saying on Twitter, quote, People should not be personally targeted for their political views, period. This isn't a game. It's dangerous. And lives are at stake. I know this firsthand, end quote. Scalise was shot and seriously wounded by a politically motivated shooter back in 2017. The president's son, Donald Trump Jr., echoed those same concerns about danger on Fox and Friends. And, you know, I, I've seen what these things do. I see, you know, what's going on with the Joaquin Castro craziness yeah, let's and putting out a list. I mean, that list sort of screams like the Dayton, Ohio shooters list, right? When, when a radical left-wing politician who's polling at about 0% does this for either attention or a call to action, it's pretty scary. I well, mean, that was, that was the same list. thing this, that the Dayton, Ohio shooter this did. Is a list. And people he should be out. fed up of this nonsense. Both Democrats and Republicans are supportive of red flag laws that would, quote, 
take guns away from people believed to be dangerous to themselves or others, end quote, according to the Associated Press. The legislation authored by Senators Lindsey Graham, a Republican from South Carolina, and Richard Blumenthal, a Democrat from Connecticut, would institute a federal grant program for states to implement red flag laws. In a speech on Monday, Trump appeared to support the legislation, saying, quote, We must make sure that those judged to pose a grave risk to public safety do not have access to firearms, and that if they do, those firearms can be taken through rapid due process, end quote. Well, up next, we'll hear from Nolan Peterson about his foreign trip with Secretary of State Pompeo. Tired of high taxes, fewer health care choices, and bigger government? Become a part of the Heritage Foundation. We're fighting the rising tide of homegrown socialism while developing conservative solutions that make families more free and more prosperous. Find out more at heritage.org. Well, joining me back in the studio is our foreign correspondent, Nolan Peterson, who is straight off of his one-week globetrotting with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Nolan, welcome back. Well, I'm glad to be back. So, uh, just before we get started, where all did you go? It was uh, quite the journey. We started off uh, with a long flight to Bangkok, spent several days there, then on to Sydney, and then a sort of a hopscotch across the Pacific, stopping in the Federated States of Micronesia for Secretary Pompeo's uh, final visit of the journey. And it was your first time traveling with the Secretary It was. Yeah, it was uh, really impressive to see uh, sort of the levers of U.S. power working abroad. And and just, I think, just to see sort of the, you know, the the importance of the presence of the United States in these places and the fact that we do carry a lot of sway around the world. And I would definitely argue against the notion that our power is somehow on the decline based on what I saw this past week. Well, your trip covered a whole you know, several sets of issues. So I want to ask you kind of go through those. Uh, Starting with Russia, you actually broke a story uh, about the U.S. putting new sanctions on Russia uh, for its use of a chemical weapon last year on British soil, uh, targeting a former Russian spy and his daughter. What's the significance of those new sanctions? Well, I think, you know, when you look at what happened last week, it was was a pretty aggressive week of uh, U.S. foreign policy. I think when you look at the uh, the additional sanctions for the Skripal uh, assassination attempt on UK soil by a nerve agent, uh, in conjunction with the U.S. decision to finally pull out of uh, of the INF treaty, the medium range missile treaty that was a carryover from the Cold War that the U.S. withdrew from last week, um, you take all these things together, and I think there, there's a pattern going on too, more broadly with the U.S. Uh, slapping new sanctions on our tariffs on China, excuse me. Uh, the, I mean, the U.S. is really kind of digging in its heels and saying that these countries are sort of are serial violators of America's trust, aren't going to get away with it any longer. And so I think you're seeing uh, a more aggressive pushback in some in some ways by the Trump administration. Uh, it happened that these two things, the, uh, the new sanctions for the nerve agent attack and the INF treaty withdrawal happened concurrently. So I think that was kind of a blow for Russia. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, America seems to be uh, really making a statement that it won't be made a fool by these countries anymore. So President Trump's decision to withdraw from the INF Treaty, this was a treaty struck at the end of the Reagan administration with Gorbachev, um, you know, really celebrated as something that would um, finally, as a breakthrough with the Soviet Union to reduce the missile stockholds. Um Russia has not been abiding by this in recent years. Um, 
And, and so, you know, it makes sense for President Trump to say, all right, well, we're not going to, you know, hold ourselves to this either. But but does this signal a deterioration of U.S.-Russia relations to the point where um, you might see a new nuclear buildup on either side? I don't think it's a deterioration. I think it's just an acceptance of reality, right? I mean, Russia's been violating this treaty for years, and the U.S. was still abiding by it just sort of, you know, for our posture, if you want to call it that. And I think that finally you just have to accept reality and saying that we are, you know, hobbling ourselves militarily by abiding by this treaty, which Russia is was blatantly violating uh, for quite a long time. I think also you can't uh, overlook the fact that as the U.S. asserts itself as a Pacific power and as we start to push back against China's more aggressive military posture in the Pacific region, the ability for us to have these ground-based missiles is, is important in the Pacific. And so China was never bound by the INF Treaty, and they have all sorts of missiles that operate within that proscribed range uh, of the INF Treaty. So now that we're sort of unbound from those obligations, uh, we have the capacity to deploy missiles in the Pacific region, which could offer a deterrent effect to China. And Sec uh, Defense Secretary Esper uh, kind of floated that possibility on his trip to Sydney, where he met, by the way, Secretary Pompeo, where we were there. Yeah, your trip to Sydney, uh, I want to ask about that because Pompeo was meeting with a major partner in the Pacific and the U.S. had just announced, President Trump had just announced that new tariffs are coming on $300 billion of Chinese goods. How are our partners in the Pacific responding to this? Well, I think, you know, when you look at Australia, Australia, you know, their number one trading partner is China. At the same time, Australia is getting, I think, more wary. I wouldn't necessarily say nervous, but concerned about China's more aggressive military posture in the region. So in a way, Australia is kind of in a pickle, right? Like they, they're dependent on China's trade at the same time. Uh, they are kind of feeling the pressure of China, you know, their territorial claims in the South China Sea, uh, acts like this, you know, covert base in Cambodia, which got exposed recently. The fact that China and Russia just conducted a joint air patrol over the Sea of Japan. So I think all these things together make Australia nervous about the long-term military threat uh, posed by China. At the same time, they want they don't want to lose that trade by doing something provocative, which might... Uh, damage their economy. So Secretary Pompeo's visit to Australia really was to rally the Australians to our side to help push back against China. And in doing so, he made the point that, you know, the economic costs potentially of stepping away from, from China pale in comparison to the long-term costs if China is able to, you know, either manipulate Australia th from within through these disinformation campaigns and electoral interference, which has happened recently. Um, as well as China trying to position itself as a strategic threat throughout the Pacific. Well, recently when, when Pompeo was in the UK, he um, you know, was critical of the UK's uh, government uh, policy toward China, specifically uh, allowing Huawei to uh, help pl to play a role in building its 5G network. Um, you noted in your story that Australia actually has drawn a hard line against China on this. Yeah, they really um, led the way on not allowing China's 5G network in their country. Uh, you know, and Australia has has called out China too for, you know, so these subversive influence campaigns on its soil, electoral interference. Um, so I, I think, you know, Australia is definitely our partner 
And I think that was clear on the trip. You know, the rhetoric come from the Australian side. You know, they're clearly with America. But they also make clear that they have to balance their national interests uh, and, and that they don't have the perhaps the 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 leeway that we do uh, to to push back really aggressively against China because our economy can weather the storm. And I'm not sure if theirs necessarily could. I think also when I mentioned the INF treaty withdrawal by the U.S., there's some concern in Australia, too, about the possibility of the United States asking to put missiles on Australian soil. That request has not been made, but Secretary Pompeo fielded quite a few or a few questions about the possibility of U.S. missiles on Australian soil during his trip. So I think there is some anxiety in Australia that they don't want to get caught up in some sort of military, you know, escalatory tit for tat mm-hmm. uh, competition between the U.S. and China. Um, but I think they also, they feel the pressure of China and they, they understand that looking forward in this new era of strategic competition, uh, that you can't just, you know, bury your head in the sand and wish this threat is going to go away because China's behavior patterns clearly indicate that, that they are trying to establish their regional dominance. Well, another big factor there in the region is North Korea. Um, and in just the last few days, they've been launching numerous uh, ballistic missile tests, and uh, they were notably uh, absent from the ASEAN diplomatic gathering in Bangkok, where you were uh, with the secretary. Um, are relations with North Korea deteriorating to a new level, or do you think this is just a typical you know, periodic fit that North Korea throws to get our attention? I, I don't think they're necessarily deteriorating. I think it's just it's sort of a lull between decision points, right? I think, you know, we haven't agreed on having new talks with them yet. And so perhaps they're just trying to sort of, you know, fan the flames a little bit to to approach the talks with more leverage, right? If they walk into the talks after all, some provocative acts, if America is looking to just get them to stop the missile tests, that gives them something extra to trade. Whereas if they weren't doing anything provocative, they'd walk in with less cards to play with us. So I think, you know, I think it's interesting that North Korea has kind of kept these missile tests below a certain threshold by which the U.S. would be forced to escalate or, you know, respond with some more sanctions or some more, some more punishment. Uh, but the Secretary of State Pompeo made it explicitly clear that he was looking to talk to North Korea. Uh, he in, made multiple entreaties to them both before the trip and during the trip that he was looking to meet. And he also made clear that there were discussions going on behind the scenes. So I would not say that, you know, we're at a total impasse right now, but I think things are going on quietly and that uh, the momentum is there for talks to resume. What's the state of affairs in Afghanistan right now? And what are the president's realistic goals there on the ground? Well, I think, you know, when you talk about timelines, Secretary Pompeo sent something on the plane flight over. He said, you know, I'd, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but he, he'd rather get something done quicker just for the sake of saving American lives. And it's not, you know, the timeline is just to, you know, get America to the point where we don't have service men and women in danger any longer. It's not, there's no sort of artificial marker based on an election. That was the point he made. Uh, yeah, talks are ongoing with the Taliban. The Taliban has said that it wants to strike a deal with the U.S. for troop withdrawal before it's willing to talk to the Afghan government. So I think the Afghan government feels a little bit left out at, the, at right now because the Taliban, their overarching objective before they start talking about a long-term peace deal is they want to get American troops out of the country. 
So I, what levers does the, the Taliban have right now? Because, I mean, violence. I know that— okay. Violence is their leverage. Because yeah. I know that after 9-11, you know, we displaced them. They were no longer in power. You have an alternative Afghan government. So if the Afghan government is still in place, what's the Taliban doing? Are they just kind of a rebel group, like a guerrilla warfare? Yeah, well, I think, you know, Afghanistan is not necessarily a unitary country. Right. Like we might consider here in the United States or another Western country. And the Taliban have de facto, they have de facto control over a lot of the country. And so I think after, you know, 18 years of war, I think, you know, reality is that they're a force in Afghanistan and that they're not going to be wiped off by any U.S. military action. And the U.S. adopted an, an advise and assist mission in Afghanistan uh, a few years ago. So we don't have a, a direct, you know, combat presence per se in the country. Um, but yeah, I think it's, you know, there is now movement towards some sort of solution with Afghanistan. I think the question is now, do we leave the country completely or do we remain there providing assistance and, and advice to the Afghan military as they move forward? And there's other examples of the United States doing this quietly in places around the world, like Kosovo, where I visited earlier this year, where we still have U.S. forces there helping the coast, the Kosovar government and their military. Uh, but it's not, you know, obviously a, a military a combat operation. Um, but yes, I think there is some movement. The U.S. is trying to talk to the Taliban to get some sort of ceasefire arrangement. Um, but, you know, as a, a veteran of the war in Afghanistan and having been a witness to what the Taliban represents, I, I don't know how you can trust them. I think any deal you strike with them, I mean, you have to walk into it with eyes wide open knowing that the minute, you know, America pulls out, uh, you no longer have a, a way to modulate that violence. And it's very likely that that uh, a lot of the progress that Afghanistan Afghanistan's society has made, particularly, you know, freedoms of women, will be reversed if the Taliban is able to claw back to power. Do you think um, Iraq could be a possible... Um analog uh, or a model for how to go about this? I mean, we withdrew from Iraq. Obviously, ISIS grew up uh, after that because we pulled out so quickly. But um, we do still have, you know, some uh, military presence there, even though we're not running uh, things politically. Do you think do you think uh, there's some comparison there that 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 we could uh, there's a way to keep some influence in the country without actually, quote unquote, being an occupying force? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's obviously different layers of differences between, you know, just the cultures and the histories of those two countries. I think in general, you know, the lesson from Iraq is we left too early, the security situation wasn't shored up, and we had to return because basically the threat we had been there to defeat, uh, you know, originally it was to defeat Saddam Hussein, but over the years, it was to defeat, to defeat that Islamist extremist uh, insurgency, but that returned after we left. And there's certainly a threat that if we leave Afghanistan, that the Taliban can take the country over again. Uh, there's a strong Islamic State presence in Afghanistan right now. So I think uh, the possibility that the country could revert to being a safe haven for terrorists with designs on global strikes is certainly there. So it's you know, it's a really tricky spot for America. I think we do have to ask ourselves the question, though, you know, 
after being at war for 18 years, at what point do we have to say that we have to leave? And in some regards, you know, we, we did displace the Taliban from power after, at the, after 2001. Um, the Afghan government has made strides toward establishing its legitimacy. So there are some who say that if you're looking at a, a definition of victory in Afghanistan, perhaps that's as good as it's going to get. You know, perhaps we are looking at, you know, sort of the apex of what we can achieve in that country. And then maybe it is time to, to, to pull back and, and, see, uh, and see how things go without our, our overt presence in the country. I don't know. I think, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to say how things would go. You know, I, I think there's not a great track record of these countries having robust democracies after we leave. And I think it's important to note that, you know, that, that sort of global Islamist threat still exists, even if it is in the shadows. Um, and it's not quite as powerful as it was before September 11th, 2001. It's still there. And uh, there is a risk of it coming back. Well, uh, you did some excellent reporting over the last week and uh, really encourage our listeners to go check out Nolan Peterson's work at The Daily Signal. Uh, when do you head back to Ukraine? Tomorrow morning. So I'm All still right. trying to figure out what time zone, day, and continent I'm on. Don't get too <laughs> comfortable with the U.S. time zone. Yeah, I won't. I won't. Yeah. <laughs> Nolan, thanks for being back on. All right. Thank you. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to The Daily Signal podcast brought to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. And please leave us a review or a rating on iTunes to give us any feedback. We'll see you again tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Lauren Evans and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.